Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through chapter 2, verse 3. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we're going to take a little break just for a week from our usual uh, sermon series in John. And this past week, if you, many of you probably know, because we've been advertising it for, about, uh, for many months, uh, the youth group, the high school students, we went on a retreat. And our theme was Identity. And I know they're going to be like, we already heard four days of this stuff. So, um, but we thought it'd be good to add to it uh, for several reasons. One, it's always a good reminder. I know it seems kind of fresh, but also to many of you who may be parents, I think it's important, not just in how you parent, in forming, hopefully at least leading them to find what I believe to be, what I believe the Bible to be telling us, which is our true identity is found in the Lord. Um, or if your children are already walking with the Lord, to encourage them, to help them stay that course. Now, regardless of, even if you're not a parent, it, at least to my understanding, it's very relevant, regardless of even how old you are. Uh, you may be on the older end of the spectrum and you look back at your life and wonder, what was it all for? Who am I? What, what sort of legacy am I leaving behind? Those kinds of questions come up. If you're on the complete opposite end of the age spectrum, you're maybe looking towards college and jobs. And, and I was having a conversation at a retreat with um, a younger high school student who was talking about major and jobs. And I'm thinking, wow, I, was, I, I don't think I was thinking about that even when I entered college as a freshman, but it was good to hear. But these are relevant questions regardless, again, where you are in your life. Um, and I think the world constantly, regardless of even if you're walking with the Lord or not, the world's going to constantly try to have something to say about who you think you are or tell you who you are or who you should think you are. So but we're going to look today at Genesis chapter one and two uh, briefly. And we're going to sort of explore different portions of Genesis as well and other parts of Scripture to see what God has to say 
Um, so if you, if you have actually your Bibles open, it'd be good. I apologize under short notice. I don't have any slides, so you will have to just listen to my wonderful voice. <clears throat> um, so identity in Genesis 1 is presented in the idea of image. And God tells us that he creates us in that image. Every single one of you even regardless of whether you believe that Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, you are created in the image of God. You possess that image of God. And it's a common Christian retort against something like racism, where everyone is equal, everyone is to be considered equal. Why? Because we are all created in the image of God. And that image, though, is not a way for us to envision God in a physical manner. So it's not there to tell us that God has a nose or two eyes or two feet or things like that. But it's really to convey characteristics and just a few of God's characteristics that he has endowed us with, that you have been given. And these are not just characteristics but they're also mandates, how you should live your life. There's so much, the great thing about the way God created us and the world he created us in is there's so much freedom as to what we can do. And Paul sort of touches on that in 1 Corinthians where he says, everything is beneficial, but not, or everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So not to take this literally, but just get my point across, God really doesn't care what job you take. He doesn't care. He doesn't care, sorry parents, how much education your children receive. That's not their identity. According to God, do they have the liberty to waste their time like me and get a PhD? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> if you want to pursue that, God bless you. I hope it works out. God is not any more pleased or disappointed, if to use those words, if let's say, let's even... Um, just for discussion's sake, let's say God were to actually tell us, I want you to be an engineer. And you never get there. Now that can happen, especially in this world, and it shouldn't surprise you, that, can, that just may not happen simply because whether you were lazy or you just made the wrong major choice or whatever it is, there's so many different factors or if you actually applied to engineering firms and you just never got the job. There are a lot of different factors that play into whether you end up there. God's not gonna be disappointed, but most of all, what he is going to desire of you is that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, however seemingly low or high, that you do it reflecting the image that he has given you. And in Genesis 1, that image is fleshed out a bit, if you look at verse 26, for example, dominion over the earth. Each and every one of you is called to exercise sovereignty, dominion, to be a master over this earth. You are not called to be enslaved by or mastered by this world. However, just to kind of jump ahead, if we consider our current circumstances, things like addiction and even the lesser addictions, the things, bad habits, for example, that is allowing things to enslave us. 
And that is a reversal or it is, a, it is a reversal of God's image, exercising what God has given us, that call to be sovereign over creation. Let's take even um, one very common, it's a, maybe the easiest example to use, the internet. How many of us have control over our phones? Or does it call out to us and we just have to answer or else? It tells us how long we must devote our time to it or else. We are enslaved to it. I'm no different. No different. Like right now, I want to know, are my eagles winning? (laughs) They're probably not. But I'm going to focus on Christ because if they're not, then I need Christ all the more. But regardless, how many of us are still enslaved? You know, Previous weeks, Pastor Sam has talked about notifications. You know, how do we just gravitate towards it? Or do we master it? Because that's a part of creation. And, you know, it was interesting. Uh, I won't mention any names, but to throw a certain portion of the youth group under the bus. So at, at the end of the retreat, we closed it off with a nice little trip to the first A&W franchise in a, Someone kind of scoffed at me because I don't like root beer. But we went there and had a nice meal together. And it was at that point, uh, well, at the beginning of the retreat, the students were asked to hand over their phones. So they did. And amazingly, they survived. <laughs> no one was suicidal. And no one came attacking, you know, per, you know, storming into my room to get them. I didn't hold them, but passionate about them. Um, but we handed them back to the students at the end of the retreat. And it was interesting that during the meal, and some of you know, because you are these people, that there was so much focus. All the great conversation and interaction and fellowship and fun disappeared. And now it's just about, and plugged in, you know, just wired. It just... It was a little disheartening. Now, which, what was more interesting, and not to make a huge point out of this thing, but it was interesting that that was mostly boys, actually. The girls were, most of them, were engaged in conversation, but the boys were just, and then we had to, like, scream, burger, who got a, you got a double cheese? And uh, <laughs> that's all they did. They just kept looking up, and they didn't even remember what they ordered. So it's amazing. How, I don't know about you. I was hungry, but... Um, we are so susceptible, weak, to the things of creation. Verse 28, in the image of Godness, in the way God created us, in our identity as it's intended, we are called to be fruitful and multiply. Now, sure, that is, in its original context, addressing the marriage relationship. But I don't think it's exclusive to that. I do believe it's to be applied later, to any relationship, not just necessarily reproduction, but in how we interact, how we have fellowship, and how we allow the the joys and the fruits of relationship to multiply and to bless others. We are not created to be alone. Now, that does not mean that if you're an introvert, that you're a bigger sinner than I am. I don't even know if I'm an introvert or extrovert, big debate, I guess, in my family, but If you're an introvert and you struggle to be with people, 
There's nothing wrong with that. However, I would say in the appropriate contexts and opportunities, God desires for you to flourish in relationship. They may be fewer, they may be a little more controlled, a little with less people, a little more quiet, that's fine. But God did not create us to simply be alone. We're called to be in community. And you know, in a fallen world where there's sin and everyone you interact with is a sinner and they're gonna bug you, even those you say I do to, you know, those are good opportunities to which you actually see your weaknesses, your impatience, your uh, lack of tolerance, whatever it may be. And that that's an opportunity for me to see not only where my sin is, but where God can redeem me. I need that community. Otherwise, I'm going to keep telling myself, if it's just me, myself, and I, I'm going to keep telling myself, you're fine. You're okay. You don't need anybody. But we really do. Again, if God created us, and that's the way he created us, then we can't deny that. Verse, I'm sorry, we don't read it, but chapter 2, verse 15, it talks about work. Now, you and I are called, uh, created in this image of God, to work. I know that's a four-letter word, but it's a good four-letter word. And work, as I shared with the youth group students uh, this past week, um, even if you're lazy, even if you're someone who absolutely wishes you won the Powerball last night and you don't have to work anymore, you actually do love work. And my reasoning is this. You appreciate work as long as it's not you doing it. Everyone loves a good meal, however carb-free or not, but you just don't want to make it. Everyone loves using their phone. Well, most people speak generally. Most people love using their phone. I don't want to ever be tasked to do, to create a phone, to manufacture a phone. Even if you showed me instructions, or I get IKEA furniture wrong. So you don't want me working. But even if I had some ambition or suddenly overcome by laziness and I don't do it, I'm definitely going to appreciate the fact that there is somebody not too far from here who is creating a new phone and putting them together. Just look at the inventions that, are, that fill our lives. We may not know the first thing as to how to create those, nor would we want to replicate them or even contribute to manufacturing them. That's fine. But the fact that we appreciate them in our lives, for example, I'm not trying to be crass, but I am so grateful that someone invented the toilet. And I think we're all in a consensus here with that. Now, I didn't invent it. If you told me to find a solution to human waste, the problem would probably just get worse. But thank God there is someone who worked it, knew what to do, created something, and then there were others who, again, manufactured them for me, for you, for all of us to enjoy. Maybe not enjoy is a good word, but, you know, to, to utilize. So work is good. And some of you may have had the privilege of working in something, exercising your creative working abilities in a way that brings you pleasure. Was it easy? No. But you find great delight in doing it. Maybe you're great at athletics. And it's hard. Sure, the practice is rough. But you find great delight in it. And I'm, 
mindful of, and some of you may have seen, I'm sorry to date myself, one of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. And if you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. It's not your action-packed kind of thing. But it, one of the characters was a Scottish Olympian named Eric Little. And Eric Little was actually born in China, uh, children, a child to missionaries. And in this one scene, he decides he is going to postpone returning back to China because he has the opportunity to go to Paris and to run at the Olympics. And his sister and Eric are having this conversation. She's trying to persuade him to go to um, China ASAP. And he said, God created me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Maybe you've had that sort of experience. Whatever it is, whether you're a doctor or a teacher, sure, uh, having taught a bit, it's, it's tough, but I enjoyed it. It was fulfilling. It was taxing, but again, very delightful and pleasurable. Now, when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, there are certain things that should like hit you like a brick wall in a positive way. Uh, we were at the retreat, and one of the men received a text from his wife, and, and she was at some gathering, and, and I don't know why he would send this sort of picture, but she sent the picture of the food they were eating. She never sent food pictures to people at a retreat who are eating cups of ramen. Um, it's not good. But uh, he was just amazed by the spread. And when you see something great, see something delightful or beautiful, two things happen. First, you recognize its quality. It's like, wow, it's amazing. That looks great, beautiful, delicious. But then a second thing happens as well. You not only recognize the quality and how it is worthy of recognition, but the next question that follows is, who made it? You go to a museum and you see works of art. I don't think you just look at a painting and say, wow, and you move on. If you're like me, you're like, whose painting is this? Whose sculpture is this? Who created this? So similarly, when we look at creation, it's intended for us to come away with that wow factor, but not just to be like, wow, that's nice. To walk away. Unfortunately, many of us do that, or we illegitimately say, wow, and then we say, it just happened. There is no creator. But Genesis 1 and 2 wants us to not only look at it and say, wow, and, and gawk at its beauty and admire it, but to say, who made this? And before sin enters into the world, they already know who created everything. Like, God, you are amazing. And when we look at creation, it's just one, two chapters in the Bible. But it's meant to express one, an abundance of beauty and glory that God gives to you and me. I mentioned the internet earlier. The internet's not created out of nothing, but it's created out of God's creation. So you could actually look at Genesis 1 and 2 and say that in those chapters, in those six days, God created the internet, something that the modern world cannot live without. 
or all the biotechnology, nuclear technology, any other technology and development, all the inventions throughout history, they were all created in those six days. The abundance, the depth of God's creation. It's not just light, fish, birds, animals, male and female. So much more to it. It's regenerative. And it can be expanded. It can be stretched in different ways. That abundance of beauty in there. But the second thing sticks out to me, which is the scope of God's creation. Verse 26, it says, rule over all the earth. Have dominion over all the earth. God doesn't say, okay, you know what? Just rule over your own. Don't worry about other places or other things. This whole earth is for mankind to dominate. I know it's a really strong word, but we are called to be sovereign over it. But like I said earlier, and the internet was just one example, we have unfortunately, because of our sin, allowed this whole creation to dominate us. Verse 26, uh, dominion over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. And in those relationships, as they grow, it says, fill the earth. That's not simply, I don't believe, just simply to fill the earth with bodies, but to fill it with the image of God. With all the characteristics that we possess, that we have been endowed with from God, fill the earth with it. Because if it's filled with animals, then it's, it's fallen short. We are to fill it. And there's so much room to fill, isn't there? And then on the seventh day, at the very end of chapter one, notice what God says. In most of the days of creation, God actually looks at what he's done and he created out of nothing simply by speaking the word. Like I said, let there be light and there's light. So after each day, most of the days, he says, it is good. But interestingly, after he's created everything, after the six days, he looks at everything and he says, all of it is good. All of it. As one big package with us at the top. However, there's sin, isn't there? And we didn't read that portion in Roman or Genesis chapter 3. But in Genesis 3, we read of how sin enters the world and everything falls apart. Now, one good thing is we still retain actually God's image. So God doesn't look at us and say like, oh, no more image. He sees the image. The unfortunate thing is now that image is fractured, broken, and corrupt. And it's not like so many things in this world where we just simply have to tweak it and fix it. But it needs a complete new image. It needs to be replaced. In Romans 1-2, Paul picks up on this theme. And he says, before there was sin, we were so in tune with God in responding to his creation that wherever we went, whatever we were doing, whatever was going on, whatever senses were being activated, we only gave glory to God. But sin comes in and suddenly we do two things. Either there's no glory to be given or two, we take it from him. We take that glory. And if you've ever done something where someone gave credit to somebody else, you know how upsetting that can be. 
And there's a little debate with me and my son. And I share this with the youth group at the retreat. So my son uh, played basketball in high school. He is here, so, you know, I'm not just throwing him on the bus while he's not here, but he's, he is here. Um, and there's this one layup he did. Uh, and it, here's the baseline. He's lefty, so he jumps. Now, the way the camera's angled, you, it's hard to really tell, but I was convinced that he actually jumped past the baseline, threw the ball over the backboard, and into the rim. Now, I didn't know this, but we do have a video uh, recording with some evidence that in the background, if you listen really carefully, someone goes, how does he do that? Where did he learn that? And then suddenly you hear a male voice say, I taught him everything he knows. He claims that's me. Now, there's, again, two ways to look at that. I did teach him everything he knows. Or I'm lying. Now, if I didn't teach him, which he claims, I deserve no credit. But if I did, I think I deserve a good deal of it. Because without my instruction, without my expertise, and my training, and my devotion to his craft, he'd be on that bench. See, so which is it? Are we going to look at creation, everything, whatever, I don't care, whatever it is that comes to mind. Your clothes, your job, your car, the redwoods, the sun, the rain, anything, you, whatever you can think of. If God created it, doesn't he deserve that glory? But what sin does, it does a great job of deceiving us to think that either it doesn't go anywhere, that glory, or it's really out. And we start to celebrate created things as if they were creators. And that, again, what that does is that fractures our image of Godness because not only do we, not only are we incapable or we are exercise of our imageness, our identity as originally created is disrupted, broken, fractured, corrupt. Even though that happens, we now no longer give glory to God because of our sin when he deserves all of it. Now, originally, God never intended for things like work and relationships to ever be what we typically think they are, in and of themselves capable of absorbing and fulfilling all of our identity. It's just not possible. God never intended it that way. Even in, a, I'll say, even in a Christian relationship, marriage is not everything. I've, I've been married 26 years. Uh, like, wow, for some of you, for some of you, like, that's nothing. But 26 years, has it been challenging? You bet. Mostly for her than for me. But, you know, when you get two people to live together, it is tough. I mean, you who are married, is it easy to live with your siblings? I thought so. You know, so... It's not easy. Marriage and relationships are not meant to fulfill the way that God does. It's only a means through which we come to recognize that there is something called fellowship. But the only fellowship and relationship that is eternal and ultimately fulfilling and that I've been created for is the one between me and the Lord. But wonderfully, again, we get to experience that through the relationship fellowship 
and communing with other people. Work. It's not meant in Genesis 1 to be fulfilling in the sense that this is who I am. I do this. People ask me, what do you do? Yeah, I, I am a pastor, but if I stop pastoring, what happens to my identity? And that actually was a personal experience for me. Because about 10 years ago, I stopped full-time ministry, and there was an internal crisis. I thought I was secure in the Lord, and now all of a sudden, I'm a grocer, shelving grocery products from 10 to 6 a.m. I'm like, what am I? I was thrown into confusion. Because where I thought I was rooted in, my, my identity was rooted in the Lord, it wasn't. So those things are not meant in and of themselves. And sadly, all of those come to an end anyway. So if you think they're all that, then what? Then what? In the most unfortunate circumstances, sometimes they're snuffed out of our lives unexpectedly. Like we think we're going to work till 65, 70, whatever the age you have set. Or we think we're going to be married until our 80s or 90s, whatever. But that doesn't always happen, does it? They're not meant to fulfill, but God uses them. He has created them, blessed us with them, so that we can experience Him and give Him all the glory. If you, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we actually get in the first three chapters uh, a picture of what the effects of sin are. And if you don't know, it's okay. Because sin enters, the serpent deceives Adam and Eve. And, you know, they fall. They disobey God where they weren't supposed to. And God shows up and he asks Adam, he said, Adam, what have you done? What does Adam say? Adam says, God... The problem was the woman you gave me. Notice that right there, he, he has already allowed the effects of sin to affect his relationship with his wife and not enjoy the communion and the blessing that God had given him through this woman to be his helper. And then what does the woman say? Eve is asked, well, what happened? And Eve says, it was the serpent. He's the problem. But what's interesting in what they don't say, but very passive-aggressively communicate, is both Adam and Eve having sinned now, they actually are blaming God. So Adam, when he says, it's Eve that's the problem, what is he really saying? I mean, where did Eve come from? Adam knows Eve came from God. God's gift to him. He's saying, God, I would have been better alone. Even Eve saying, God, this serpent, part of the created order, I know that's another sermon for another day, but um, you're the one, you shouldn't have allowed this to happen. And it's a common question in every retreat. Why did God allow sin to happen? God, it's your fault. We never like to entertain the fact that we are the ones committing the sin. Here, so the, the blessings that come through our imageness are completely disrupted. And we don't give glory to God. We simply blame Him. But whenever there's something good, oh, we'll take that glory. So what does God do? Well, again, even in Genesis 3, 
God has provided the solution. He could have simply said, well, here's your identity broken. Here's your image broken, disrupted, fractured, corrupted. You know what? I'm just going to leave you like that. You know, I'll let you live, but let's just leave it at that. But that would be awful. But out of his grace and mercy, he offers a solution. And that solution isn't just communicated in the New Testament, but it's actually communicated in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3.15, we're told that one day, an offspring is going to come from the line of this woman. And it says, the serpent will bruise your head, but the descendant and the seed of the woman will bruise his heel by stomping on this serpent. He gives them hope that one day there's someone who's going to come and make it right. And in theology, we call this actually the first declaration of the gospel. It's fleshed out, given more detail later. If you look at just Genesis 3.15, we don't know his name. But we know he's going to come from the line of Eve. We don't know the matter in which he's going to be hurt. Later we know that's the cross. Now, Paul picks us, picks us up in Galatians 2.20. And what Paul wants to communicate, not as and I'm going to quote also from 2 Corinthians in a second. But what Paul wants us to know is, again, that this broken image and identity cannot simply be duct taped in any way, spiritually, physically, emotionally, psychologically, whatever. It has to be replaced. And again, the great thing about the good news of the Bible, of God, is that he offers that replacement. No matter how hard we work, no matter how good our relationships may be, no matter what we do, even successfully, even praised among men, even the legacy of legacies, it doesn't matter. God is saying, none of that will do, but I am going to offer you something that will work. And that is the one image that is perfect, untainted, and that is my son. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I, this is Paul speaking, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live with my image and identity that I have tried to scrap together from this world. And Paul was very smart, very respected, all the above. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. That's my image. It's Jesus. Even if you go back to Genesis, we see a bit of that. If you remember when Adam and Eve sin and try to cover themselves with fig leaves, what does God do? God doesn't say, good job, that looks great. No, he tells them to get rid of it and he covers them with the skins of animals. He covers them with something else. And that's a foreshadowing of what he does in Jesus. He's saying, what you have is not good enough. It's shameful. But I'm going to give you something else which is the righteousness of Jesus, that image. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says that if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. The old is gone, and the new has come. He doesn't say the old is going. He doesn't say the old is sticking around. The old is gone, the new has and so what God essentially does is he says, you know what, let's make a deal. Now, this deal is going to sound a little silly because in the end, 
I'm actually gaining far less than you. And God offers the perfect, pristine image of Christ to us to replace what we have, which is, again, broken, fractured, and corrupted. He says, all you got to do is offer me that. Let's switch. Like, what's the catch? There is no catch. Let's make an exchange. You give me yours, I'll give you mine. And that's what he does. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we're told by Paul that Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin, so that you and I could be the righteousness of God. Righteous, holy, straight, whole before God. No longer broken, distant, separated, misunderstood, whatever. Now we are made right with God because of that new image, the restored image that only comes from Jesus, who is the very image of God himself. Now, I want to close with some very specific applications. And this pertains to some of you who are currently going through it. But eventually, for all of us, we will either witness it in our homes or experience it ourselves. And some of you are going through some really difficult physical challenges. And the pain is unbearable. The possibilities are depressing. But the word of God and the good news of Jesus with the restored image that is offered and hopefully for you received, I want you to know that that far outweighs the brokenness of your body. And I want you to gaze upon what Christ has done and who he is to you. That though the body may fail, the Holy Spirit in you will thrive. Will the pain linger? Yes. I can't take that away. But I'm reminded as I think about that, I think of Jesus when he was crucified and resurrected. And I found it very interesting once that Jesus' hands were still pierced after he resurrected from the dead. Now, if I was writing the gospel, I would think, doesn't that kind of sound like, I don't know, an oxymoron, a contradiction? If you want people to believe in newness, shouldn't his body be, ah, radiant? You know, wouldn't that make more sense? But Jesus comes back, and he's got holes in his hands. He's still got that gash in his side. And I believe the reason why Jesus retained those, and the Bible tells us that he's going to have those when you see him in heaven, is to show that no matter what happens to the body, those things which the world will say, are reminders of pain and dark chapters in our lives, of betrayal, they have now become the trophies of God's righteousness, of his salvation. So that when, today when we look at scars, we're like, oh yeah, I got that when I, you know, got into a car accident. 
but we don't really like to talk about it. A little PTSD, perhaps. But with Jesus, he says he wants us to walk. Why? Because who he is, his righteousness, is far brighter. That when we go to heaven, again, they will be reminders of how great the eternal life and the salvation of Jesus is. That even with all the betrayal, all the physical pain, everything that went into that one nail, it all disappears. Overshadowed, overcome by the good news. So if you are today, your bodies are falling apart. Take hope and peace and joy that you have received the untainted, pristine image of God. Lastly, I'll close with this last verse. Matthew 11, verses 20 to 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Work can't give that. Relationships can't either. Only Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us in our broken estate. We thank you out of your grace and mercy you offer your son to replace our broken image. We are certainly grateful that we get to use what is not ours, enjoy what is not ours, receive what is not ours for our delight and for your glory. And we thank you that one day all will be made perfect, that even the brokenness of our bodies and the things that are falling apart, the losses and the failures, the rejections, the mistakes will all fall away. And all we will see is Jesus. As we approach this table, we pray for, for you to graciously remind us, strengthen us and encourage us with the good news that Christ is all we need to restore us into a proper position to glorify you. And how can we not when we consider the love that has been shown on the cross? Again, we praise you and we honor you for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>